Welcome to the Regenerate Podcast, exploring the regenerative movement in all aspects of life to revitalize, restore, and re-energize for a better world. I'm your host, Jenna. So stoked to have you here. Let's regenerate together. to another episode of the Regenerate podcast. Today's guest is Sanjay Rawal, who is the director of the film Gather, which is a very powerful documentary showing the growing movement amongst Native Americans to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty. So we dive into the film and how it kind of came to be, better understanding food sovereignty, the history of genocide and kind of reimagining a local food system. We also dive into the supply chain and really understand kind of those corporate leaders that dictate, you know, what goes in our grocery stores and at what price. So I'll let Sanjay take it away and let's get into it. All right, welcome everybody. As mentioned, we have an incredible filmmaker here, Sanjay Raul, talking to us about the film Gather. And we're super excited for this discussion. I've been waiting a few weeks for this, so I'm very happy to have you here. Welcome, Sanjay. Thanks so much, Jenna. It's great to be on your podcast. I am so looking forward to it. So before we get into chatting a bit about the film, um, let's get a little bit more of a background on kind of, you know, what you do and why you do it. Well, I was um, born in Africa, but raised in the U.S. and have been in New York City for the last 25 years or so. I, I worked for about 10 to 12 years on human rights projects in about 40 to 50 countries around the world. And the projects that gave me the most enjoyment were ones where my, the people I was serving uh, had a, a, as much voice in the project as those funding or those organizing. And so in a sense, they got to tell their own stories through international development. At the same time, I was a photographer and as cameras began to cycle to be able to take video as well, I began making short films of uh, projects more often than not in conflict zones or war zones. And I was most of the time the only photographer there. So, you know, people began to watch the little films and it gave me confidence to start making feature length documentary films. My first film was about eight or nine years ago. It was called Food Chains about migrant farm workers in the US. Uh, Eva Longoria produced it, Forrest Whitaker narrated it. And it did surprisingly well for a film about a subject that most people aren't really seeking to learn about. And now, you know, Gather is my third film. So thrilled to be talking to you about this one. Yeah, and it's, it's been doing great so far. And for those listening in that maybe haven't seen the film, I highly suggest checking it out because uh, lots of powerful messaging um, from it. So to get into um, a little bit of, you know, how do you approach, um, you know, the process of filming or getting into a film like Gather, um, you know, building trust within like the communities and such. Um, so what are, what are some of the things that you did to prepare yourself for, for this film and, and walk us through a bit of that process? Well, great question. I mean, no, number one, this is a space fraught with misunderstanding. The, the space of making films about indigenous people. The, the first documentary ever made was in 1929 about an Inuit man. Uh, the movie was called Nanook of the North by an Anglo-European 
American named Robert Flaherty. It wasn't a bad film. It was the first documentary of its kind. So Flaherty was making up a lot of the rules as he went along. Uh, the community uh, up in Alaska was very much a part of the production. That said, it created an industry where people of economic privilege flew or drove to places where there were exotic or indigenous people and made films and disappeared. And sometimes those films are great and they were done with the full participation of communities. But after now 90 years of this industry, in more cases than not, indigenous children learn about indigenous themes through media created by non-indigenous people. And so I would never have made a film about indigenous Native American food sovereignty had it not been for a friendship and partnership that I had with an American philanthropy uh, organization called First Nations Development Institute, even though it's based in Colorado and deals primarily, if not exclusively with uh, indigenous communities in the 50 United States. So they had, they have a, a 40 year track record of working with Native American communities uh, in the food space. And so were it not for that, I wouldn't have had two things. I wouldn't have had the, the trust within communities that would have required 10 to 20 years of, of um, friendship. And number two, as a non-Native filmmaker, the last thing I want to do was fall into the same tropes as other non-Natives have. Even though I am a person of color, for those um, who are in the, uh, the, the audio-only world right now, um, I am from India. And that has given me a lot of freedom in Indigenous communities because there isn't the same sort of relationship between Indigenous communities and, you know, and, and people uh, from India. That said, you know, without this sort of partnership, I would have never attempted making a movie like this. Wow. No, and, and I and you've done it so beautifully. And I think you also have members of your of your crew that were from the local community, things like that, um, which I was just really important as well. Um, did you want to speak a bit to to that? Well, so you know, the the film really is a is a triptych of three communities in the United States: the the Lakota people, specifically the Cheyenne River Sioux um, Nation. We follow a young scientist named Elsie Dubray. And we're on the Western Apacheria, which is in Eastern Arizona, uh, the White Mountain Apache tribe, the San Carlos Apache tribe. We follow a chef on White Mountain and a forager on San Carlos. And we follow a story on the Klamath River on the border of, Col of California and Oregon. Um, so it was it's, it's a multi-dimensional approach. We felt that we needed to have more than one tribal nation represented because we were trying to make a film about a very broad subject, indigenous food sovereignty. Um, at the same time, we didn't want to make a survey film and uh, have like 500 different interviews. In fact, we actually don't have a single interview in the film. We don't have experts. We don't have talking heads. The experts are the people on the ground. And that's always been my approach with documentary filmmaking, where my characters are the ones whose voices I want to hold up. And so in that sense, you know, when I explained the approach to the people who were in the film, they very much understood that they were driving their own narrative. They were setting the context for their own work. We weren't going to bring a third party in. So even from that standpoint, my characters were incredibly important partners 
and yeah, we did of course have, rely a lot on 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 folks literally on the ground in those communities, but more often than not, that was generated by people seeing the access really that our characters were giving to us. And those characters are they're not just pillars of their own tribal nations, they're pillars of the food sovereignty movement as a whole. So as people began learning both in the United States and Canada about the film and saw that these particular characters had given us permission and they hadn't yet been in any other documentary films, they realized that, you know, perhaps we were capturing um, a reality in the way that indigenous people would identify with. Amazing. So you did give us, you know, some snippets there about what uh, what the film is about, but would love, other than my couple sentences, kind of your perspective on, on what is the film all about? So the, the main spine is following um, a chef, Nephi Craig, from the White Mountain Apache tribe, as he tries to build an indigenous cafe. Now, he's of a French culinary background, cooked in a lot of great restaurants, but, you know, he dealt with a lot of issues that a lot of food professionals do um, have problems with. Sobriety um, was an issue, drug addiction was an issue, and he lost everything. And as a 30-year-old or 29-year-old moved back to his reservation to get sober, and in doing so, began to understand that his whole framework for food was wrong, and that he could actually use indigenous foods and a relationship built with foods the way his ancestors did to heal himself and to heal others. So his restaurant is very much a clinic, not just for other people struggling with recovery, but to try to reintroduce the traditional food systems to um, um, population that's been decimated by Western dietary afflictions like diabetes and obesity, hypertension, et cetera. He's trying to change palates and trying to ultimately change the relationship that people have with their food system as indigenous people. Um, around his story revolves a forager named Twyla Casador from the San Carlos Apache Reservation. And we interweave that story with that of a, a young woman on the Cheyenne River Lakota Reservation, Elsie Dubray, who grew up on a buffalo ranch and is exploring ways to um, express her passion for Western science and molecular biology, biochemistry, with the traditional food systems that existed pre-colonization on her land and that were decimated by colonizers, specifically the extinction or the near extinction of buffalo and the importance that buffalo held in the Lakota diet. And lastly, we interweave the whole story with a group of kids on the, on the Klamath River, a gigantic river in California that's been dammed. Um, the Yurok and the Hoopa and the Kuruk people are traditionally salmon people, but those dams have obviously, you know, for a very physical reason, stopped the flow of the river and the salmon upstream, which has decimated their own tribal relationships with the river and made them reliant on food sources that are very much non-native. So these stories interweave and kind of give people a sense of where the food sovereignty movement is today in Indian country, why it's important for native people. And ultimately there are some parallels to, you know, what's going on in the regenerative and permaculture spaces as well. For sure. And the the film really shows, you know, what a food desert is and, you know, how so many communities don't have the economic means or the agricultural grounds to really kind of 
grow their own food and create nutrient rich foods. And so what, what is the history that you learned for like why these communities are in the situations that they're in? Well, so it's, it's important to note that up until the 1860s, the majority of the global economy was all based on agriculture. I mean, there were some precious metals, but in terms of like, and there were like textiles, things like that traded in, in Eurasia. But the Anglo-European colonizers that came to what's now the US and Canada came so for the topsoil. I mean, the Spanish were looking for those mythical, you know, mountains of gold. But when the first English settlements began, you know, popping up, they realized that the wealth was in the farmland that natives had cultivated for thousands of years. The entire eastern seaboard was an interlocked series of agricultural biomes, um, managed hunting grounds, etc. And, you know, it's like the English were the, the, the first experimenters at pushing natives off their land, converting that regenerative permaculture rich farmland into monocropped land uh, to grow cash crops, tobacco, um, cotton, etc. In fact, in 1763, the, the British government uh, issued something called the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which forbade American colonists from going west of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, why would colonists want to go west? They'd already decimated the topsoil of the eastern seaboard in 100 years of monocropping. They needed new topsoil. That topsoil was occupied by Native Americans, and they needed the British military support to basically wage guerrilla warfare to drive natives off those farmlands the way they had on the eastern seaboard to reapportion those farmlands to monocrop. Um, and we see that in the push westward. You know, Native American tribes in the 1700s and 1800s in the United States were basically force marched from their own ancestral homelands to new, quote, homelands west of the Mississippi River. Now, those homelands west of the Mississippi River were to remain native for all future. But as Americans began needing more economic opportunities, remembering that all economic opportunities outside of cities were tied into agricultural production, they pushed west and they took over the Midwest, destroyed um, grasslands, killed buffalo, planted monocrops like wheat and corn and other things to export to cities. Now, the U.S. government was fully behind this expansion. It needed uh, a military um, occupation and needed that support because natives weren't going to give up that land easily. And we see that, you know, in the first 50 or 60 years of occupation of the Great Plains, that rich topsoil, those rich prairie lands were turned into a literal dust bowl. So that's the state where we're at right now. I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, the ma vast majority of land use in both the United States and Canada isn't for human habitation. It's for unsustainable grazing, um, cattle for the most part, and through massive monocropped fields. And that's exactly in opposition to how the biomes in North America evolved over tens of thousands of years. Wow, and I, I really want to dive deeper into into the food system and understand, you know, what aspects of the food system that have drastically changed that most people aren't aware of or haven't connected that dot to. Yeah, like you mentioned, agricultural land being not necessarily for 
for food. Um, so yeah, what are, what are some of the things that you can share with us today about that? But the last bit, which is actually the answer to your previous question, is that as natives began being pushed away from American civilization, they were essentially pushed away from urban centers and population centers. And then in the Midwest, when the railway system started going up around the industrialized industrial revolution, they were pushed away from railroad tracks and railway systems. And the railway systems across North America, you know, became the mirror for the highway systems. And so natives in the United States and, and in Canada to a great degree are not part of the supply chain, which means that they are as far away from the spokes and the hubs of these massive networks which move calories as one could possibly be. Of course, it's, you know, it's, it's different to move non-perishable goods like oil. So it's, they have, there's gas stations all over tribal land. But because these areas are economically depressed and as far away from you know, the economically viable sections of the food system, they often receive you know, very low quality, very high priced goods. And those are often distributed at gas stations because it doesn't make economic sense to build a gigantic grocery store for populations that wouldn't sustain um, the, 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 I guess the existence of those stores. And so people should realize that, you know, up until about the 1940s, the majority of North American food systems were very much from very local supply chains. But refrigeration, refrigerated transport, things like that created the ability to look to other places in North America, other places in the world for supplies. Now, it's hard to imagine that the biggest players are actually grocery stores. You know, grocery stores in the 70s and 80s, there was, you know, 60, 70, 80 major chains in Canada and the United States, but Walmart decided to enter into grocery in 1986. And they had a different philosophy. They asked farmers uh, to produce a lot more, much bigger orders, uh, but for much lower margins so that Walmart could effectively offer food more cheaply than had ever been offered before. Now there's a term called monopsony. Monopoly is when, uh, the entire supply going to consumers is controlled by one outlet. Monopsony is on the other side. Monopsony is a word for the supply chain. A monopsonistic situation is where uh, a corporation is big enough to be able to dictate terms all the way down the supply chain. And, and economically, they don't really need to have more than 33% of the overall market. So going back to that Walmart example, Walmart created a demand for really, really big farms to sell all of their goods strictly to one outlet, Walmart. And it made sense for the farms because they could offload an entire year's worth of production without the variance of having to sell to 60, 70 different grocery stores. They would make a lot less, but they could possibly net as much or if not more because of the guaranteed contracts. So that created pressure, number one, for other farms who wanted to sell to Walmart to be able to produce as much as Walmart wanted. At the same time, within the grocery industry, you needed, be, you, need, you needed to be able to match Walmart's prices, which meant that you had to really consolidate. You had to 
to build big box stores. You needed to consolidate your supply chain. And that kind of created a consolidation in the grocery store industry where now in North America, I think seven or eight major chains control about 80 to 90%. And so in terms of gross dollars, Walmart did about $400 billion in grocery sales, gross, um, last year. Google globally did about 45 or $50 billion in gross revenue. Of course, of Google's 50 billion, probably 10 to 15 is profit out of and you know a, a good you know 15 20 30 percent margin if not more of costs walmart's margin is probably four or five percent but walmart makes more profit than google it but that that actually doesn't matter because walmart is so big that it's controlling the entire supply chain beneath it so it, it's all to say that we're in a situation now where there is no incentive for grocery stores to buy locally they are looking for the cheapest price and the largest quantities, which is why so much of production has been moved to areas where labor costs are low, land costs are low. Because lastly, going back to the situation of a farmer, in the last 30 or 40 years, tractor prices, seed prices, fertilizer prices have gone up land taxes have gone up. The only place where farmers can save money is on labor, which is why farm labor rates have remained effectively the same since the 70s, if you adjust for inflation, and which is why it's actually more profitable for farmers to move their operations to places where land costs are lower, like Mexico, labor costs are lower. Um, so we've seen this, this shift from a local food system to one that's entirely globally controlled. Wow. I had no, no idea to, to that scale of how things are, yeah, how things are really controlled. Um, Walmart being, wow, what a great example. They're all big. They're all big. Like, you know, Kroger, Safeway, these companies are doing 30, 40, 50, 60 billion dollars in gross revenue. And yeah, it might not mean that they're profiting a whole lot, but it means that they're spending if, if Safeway is doing 50 billion and is profiting one or two billion, it means it's spending 48 billion dollars on costs, the majority of which is going to pay for things that it sells to customers. So it's, it's putting in billions into the supply chain. So it's really able to dictate terms all the way down. Right. And it, and it dictates what people um, choose to buy, right? And I think. Um, a humbling moment for me from this film is really learning like what local food really is. And I think I've heard you speak about, you know, the grocery system and, and the food chain supply really dictates kind of the foods we choose because that's what's in our stores, right? And how that has even trickled down into our, our local farming systems um, because we don't really necessarily understand what local food really is. And obviously the film dives into that and would love for you to kind of share those perspectives. So it's a great point. Like grocery stores all sell the same things, right? It's like, and they've created a, a palette for, for North Americans. We expect the same types of lettuce, the same types of tomatoes. The variety is very, very minimal. In fact, if something looks unusual, we won't buy it. Like people don't buy yellow tomatoes, which was the original color of wild tomatoes. Pomodoro means golden apple, the Italian word. 
the first tomatoes that the Italian conquistadors and explorers brought back to Italy were yellow. Again, that's why they're called golden apples. Um, so it's like, we don't, we don't have a, 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 there's no demand for that sort of variety. And that's trickled down, like you said, to local production. When, if we look at farmer's markets as the primary outlet for distributing and marketing those local goods, you know, we don't see unusual things. I mean, if a farmer's market doesn't have the kind of same old, same old, uh, maybe higher quality, then we won't go there. We need the lettuce, we need the tomatoes, we need the potatoes, the apples, etc. That said, prior to contact, prior to Europeans coming to, to North America, food systems were hyper-local. People relied on a, a, a variety of different food agricultural techniques. There was a lot of farming. Uh, there was a lot of foraging for medicinal herbs for other plants, not just mushrooms, but other sorts of tubers, sunchokes, which are sunflower tubers, um, things like that that, aren't, that are grown in the wild. There wasn't a, a system of animal husbandry or grazing per se, but there was a lot of herd management. Uh, buffalo ranged all the way from Alaska down to Florida. There was a deep understanding of how to track and how to hunt. Um, typically hunter-gatherer societies spend a lot more time, I mean a lot less time per person in gathering food. They might spend 20 to 30 hours per week per person, whereas those of us who are doing nine to five jobs to basically work for food and shelter are spending 40 to 50 hours a week as opposed to you know, traditional cultures that would spend much less. And so they had more time to spend on culture, to spend on science, to spend on athletics, religion, spirituality, etc. That said, you know, there were more than 100 million people in North America that managed these exquisitely interconnected ecosystems for more than 20, 30,000 years. And when Europeans came, they were the first essentially grocery stores. They transplanted that European system of farming, that European palette of uh, meat, grazing, livestock, those farming practices to ecosystems that for the most part weren't ready for that. They required a tremendous amount of fertilizer, uh, a lot of tilling, a lot of soil preparation. They didn't do crop rotations. They didn't do the sorts of things that traditional ecological practices here um, really require to keep the land healthy. So I want to segue into kind of integrating some of the wisdom from the film. And I know um, we kind of, I've heard you talk a bit about kind of understanding kind of these bigger things that are really happening and detaching from them to our addictive programming per se. Um, like, how do you see us kind of, you know, moving into a new direction or what, is, what do you foresee happening in, in the future? So the, the film was about a, co a concept called food sovereignty. Now, a lot of people are, are familiar with the idea of food security, and that's obviously, you know, making sure that people have caloric requirements. And it doesn't, that, that word or phrase doesn't really have any requirements for the way labor is treated, the way people are treated, the way the supply chain functions. Um, food sovereignty is a different level of understanding. It's really fundamentally, um, a scenario where your local environment can provide you or your community with the environmentally and culturally appropriate foods you need 
And so like you see Vietnamese transplanted, Hmong, Cambodian transplanted, Laotian transplanted communities growing a lot of their own food because grocery stores wouldn't, don't have the, the herbs, the vegetables, et cetera. So like in minority communities, there tends to be that concept of culturally specific foods sold at really small stores. But if you erased the supply chain in grocery stores, most of us wouldn't have the wherewithal to be able to produce, grow, and hunt for our own foods. Um, we might not have the relationship with people that we don't realize we're relying on right now. So indigenous and non-indigenous communities that achieve food sovereignty have understood the reliance on human beings, reliance on local food producers, whether they're restaurants, whether they're grandmas, whether they're farmers, and keeping communities healthy and happy. And we see this definition of like the local food system moving more and more and more local. Even big grocery stores for supply chain reasons are investing heavily in local production just to mitigate transportation costs and rising fuel prices. But that's more food security. That's making sure that there are a certain amount of calories in an area, but those calories don't necessarily have to be healthy. They don't really have to be ecologically friendly and they don't have to be culturally specific. So the types of food systems that we are unconsciously moving towards are ones that are informed by the film gather, looking at what the environment could produce seasonally, monthly, weekly in order to sustain us. Um, not just for a year, but for generations at a time. I mean, if we looked at the food, food system with that generational outlook, you know, we wouldn't monocrop. We'd understand how to keep the soils healthy, how to keep, you know, pollinators healthy, how to keep insects healthy, you know, subterranean creatures, you know, active soil health, of course, water health, air health, because as human beings, we don't get calories from the sun. We don't get calories from oxygen, from water. Our interactions with our environment have always been through food. And those foods have given us caloric requirements, but also medicinal benefits, because that's been the kind of highway for our interactions with our local environment. Now that we don't have those interactions with local environments, we only have those interactions with grocery stores and restaurants, we've kind of lost the consciousness of how important the soil, air, and water are in producing those calories. So I think, you know, the future of food is people really understanding the amount of work, the, the amount of, of environmental sensitivity that is needed to produce the calories that sit on our table and for those calories to be things that give people a good lifestyle, that make people happy, not just the people that eat the food, but the people that sell the food, the people that grow the food, the people that, that harvest or butcher the food that whole ecosystem based on human interactions with nature, human interactions with other humans is the basis for this concept of food sovereignty and healthy, safe food system. Yeah, I think that's uh, really important to talk about because I know when I first heard the term food sovereignty, I, I went right to food security and I, that's what I thought it meant. But there is so much more of a, a deeper understanding. And I know the film actually talks a lot about, about healing and how, you know, 
you know, food is, is so healing on so many levels. So we'd love for you to kind of talk about that as well. So the, there's, there's two aspects from the indigenous aspect, you know, the food systems were destroyed as a means of subjugation. And at the same time, in Canada and in the US, there was a boarding school system where kids were forcibly removed from home and they were forced to forget their ancestral languages. When you forget your traditional language that was all place-based, you forget the names of foods. You forget the names of insects and plants, recipes, preparations, etc. So stripping people away from the land, number one, destroying the food systems, physically destroying the food systems, like destroying buffalo, and erasing cultural memory through the erasure of language, um, you know, has kind of resulted in this lack of food sovereignty. That said, those of us in North America who are non-Indigenous, we're also completely, up, we're completely disconnected from our genetic strength. With the exception of a few populations like Ashkenazi Jews, the majority of us 400 years ago and thousands of years prior were pretty much rooted in one place. If, for example, you were born above the Arctic Circle and you couldn't digest high amounts of fat, you died and your genes weren't passed on. So the people really alive now above the Arctic Circle have a genetic strength that's based on adaptation to food systems. You can put a jacket on as a human being and you can survive anywhere, you know, as long as there's clean air and, and clean water. But if you weren't very well adapted to the foods and the calories around you, the medicines, the environmental aggressors around you, you died and didn't pass on your genes. So those of us who aren't living in the same places as our ancestors, those of us who come from, from lineages that have been split and bifurcated and you know just incredibly branched out don't have that connection to the environments that make our genes strong and so it's kind of beholden upon us to understand what makes our genetics strong or weak a lot of people know with autoimmune diseases and other things there aren't just immediate environmental factors there are dietary factors in this day and age, if you can't survive past 12 on a high fat, high sugar, you know, carbonated soda diet, you're gonna die and you're not gonna pass on your genes and you're gonna lose thousands, if not tens of thousands or millions of years of genetic preparation to this day. So there's a spiritual issue with that. There's um, a human you know, dietary issue with that. There's simple things that people can do, you know, tracing back where your lineages come from you can reacquaint yourself with the types of foods that those communities traditionally ate, whether they were grains that you could find or whether they were techniques that were practiced. Like in Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe you know, fermentation is an incredibly important technique. And it's like our gut microbiomes, if you couldn't handle fermented foods, again, you wouldn't be able to digest foods and you wouldn't pass on any of your genes to the next generation. So it's and traditional techniques, it's traditional foods, it's those traditional diets of our ancestors that make us who we are today. And none of us outside of indigenous communities, those of us who rely on the grocery store system, none of us are eating anything close to that ancestral genetic diet. 
So the film, you, you mentioned before we kind of got going today that you were, the intention was to mostly serve, um, you know, the Indigenous, the Native American communities. And, you know, now it's sort of really taking off and, and people are, you know, all over the world are, are watching this film. So, you know, what are some of the, the, the things you foresee that you wish to uh, come to fruition, I guess? You know, what sorts of things would you like to see happen, you know, across America, you know, the United States, Canada, like what sorts of things do you hope will really spiral from this film? I mean, I, I think that there's, there's two aspects to the film for non-natives. Number one, there is a recognition of how we as non-natives who have some sort of economic privilege, um, institutional privilege, not under the same sorts of institutional oppression, whether it's law enforcement or whether it's land management institutions and government, that we have contributed to their situation, um, even if we're new immigrants to a country. But then, you know, there are those people who've been in a country for a few hundred years and have benefited from their families establishing their lineage on formerly native lands. And I, can, I think the same is true for Canada, but the most racist places that I've been to in the US and Canada are towns bordering uh, tribal territory. We see that you know, in Eastern Canada right now with the, the Mi'kmaq uh, lobster uh, conflicts with local um, Anglo-European uh, descended Canadian uh, lobster fishermen, where there's just animosity and there's violence. And from the native standpoint, some of the characters in our film have spoken this way, which is why I'll, I'll parrot it, that the settlers who live on the edge of tribal territory established themselves there through acts of their ancestors. Now, those ancestors either accepted land that was given to them after violence or they inflicted violence themselves. Um, more often than not, they did so because they wanted to establish their roots. They wanted to establish their family. So indigenous people and non-indigenous people in those areas have the same inciting incident, that initial violence. Nobody alive today is responsible for those initial acts but the historical trauma weighs on both sides. It weighs on the native side, obviously loss of land, being a victim of genocide, but it's a psychological torment to people on the other side who might not recognize or want to recognize their part in it. But I think it's kind of paramount if we're looking at reconciliation to first address the truth that people in those border towns have families who did incredibly violent things. And if they want to have peace in their own lives, they have to recognize that. And they have to find ways to reconcile that within themselves. And when they do, I've often found that a lot of the hatred that is ingrained in their family lineages towards Native people begins losing the justification. And then friendships are born. I mean, there's no Native person I know who lives on a reservation who wouldn't like to have a better relationship with people bordering the reservation but that first step doesn't need to be taken by natives it needs to be taken by people outside and recognizing that shared history euphemistically the obverse and the reverse of the same coin 
Um, so there are those types of conversations that need to happen. I don't know if that's going to happen because of our movie. I don't think it will. But I know a lot of people that have those types of family histories where people know they benefited from native land or violence against native people 100, 200, 300, 400 years later, feeling a sense of healing from the movie, realizing that their ancestors didn't destroy everything. And now they're trying to find ways they could constructively support the movement, um, either through dollars, either through allyship, or finding ways to stay out of the way. All those things are diametrically opposite to what their ancestors um, did. Wow. Yeah, I know for me personally, I found the film very inspiring. And, and you know, I messaged a friend kind of right away saying, you need to, you need to start your own indigenous restaurant, like, let's do this. And so I think there's, you know, I'm super excited to see kind of what happens with the film. And I think there's lots of, you know, I'm really glad that it ended up being shown to a lot of more, a bigger audience and we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, I want to thank you like so much for joining us today. And is there anything else you'd like to, to share about the film? No, other than the fact that people can go to, uh, in Canada, they can go to iTunes and Vimeo on demand to watch the film. For those listening from the U.S., you can also go to Amazon. Amazing. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. And again, those tuning in, please check out the film. I think you'll take so much away from it. And I look forward to checking out your future productions. And uh, thanks again so much for joining. My pleasure, Jenna. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Regenerate podcast. If you're interested in checking out more of our content, please subscribe to the channel. Uh, you can also visit us on YouTube at Regenerate Co. You can send us an email, regenerateco at gmail.com. And if you're interested in connecting with me, Jenna, the host, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Jenna Thornburg. So thanks for joining us.